And we're live. Welcome back to yet another episode of the Sci-Fi... Sh- nope, I did it again, Chris. It's all your fault. The Blasters and Blades podcast. Hey, all you crazy sci-fi and fantasy fans. It's time for your daily dose of shenanigans over here at the Blasters and Blades podcast. Just three nerdy veterans geeking out over our science fiction passions and fantastical fantasies. A place where magic is king, the sky is the limit, and space is the place. We are the podcast that puts the fun in dysfunction. So without further ado, we will uh, handle the debt I owe to the penny jar for getting the podcast name wrong. It's only been three years since we rebranded, uh, Greg. So you figure I, I've got a few more years where I can milk this, right? At, at least, yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. So uh, you are Dr. Gregory Miller. Um, can you please introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? Yeah. Hi, um, I'm Greg Miller. I currently teach at the Air Force's Air Command and Staff College. Uh, I've been here for about four years. I've been teaching uh, for Department of Defense for about 10, and uh, I have my uh, PhD in political science, and so I'm, I'm one of those doctors that can't really help people, but uh, <laughs> that you know that's me in a nutshell for now. Okay. And uh, because we have a special guest, because I, you know, you write brainy stuff, so I wanted someone a little bit smarter than me, and we brought a friend of the show, uh, Chris Denodon. So Chris, can you introduce yourself to our listeners and viewers? Sure. Thanks, JR. Um, hey, everybody. Some of you may know me as uh, Chris and Oak, kind of a uh, smallish time, uh, brand new sci-fi guy and writer, uh, not just most sci-fi, but a few other things. But uh, today I'm mostly talking in my day job capacity. So I'm Colonel Chris Oak, United States Air Force. I'm the uh, senior intelligence officer for the continental U.S. NORAD region, First Air Force, which is also Air Force's Northern and now Air Force's Space, which is how I think I got roped into this uh, little piece here. Um, just real quick before we go on, uh, all opinions and uh, thoughts I might express here are my own and do not represent the official position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Uh, mine I'll definitely do, I'll don't. that for me. <laughs> mine definitely don't. They don't like my opinions. Mostly. I think I got you covered, Doc. Thanks. Yeah, mostly because I, I I like out to think out there. So you know, we we go to the fun conspiracies not because I believe them, but just because they're fun to think about. But all right, so the next part of the introduction, dear listener, is how we found them. So uh, I actually was talking to a friend of the show, Daniel, who runs the uh, fan podcast for the Galaxy's Edge universe, and we had talked about potentially putting together on that end a panel talking about Sun Tzu in space. Uh, as the idea, not knowing this book existed, so I typed it into the old Google box and came up with Sun Tzu in Space by Dr. Gregory. Uh, and let me just throw that cover up because it's it's an attractive cover. Uh, there we go. Hold on. They remade, uh, moved all the StreamYard signals. There we go. So that's the cover. And I like, oh, so the book exists. Let's see if I can get him on the show. And then I had trouble tracking you down because um, I guess they don't my like Google us out failed of the building me. If, if they can help it. <laughs> so uh so denote was like well all you gotta do is type this into the search engine you idiot and the rest is history so that's how we got here so uh in a roundabout way we found you through the galaxy's edge fandom uh but but chris as a first time co-host you get to ask the religion questions today are you ready for this this is responsibility here sir oh um, i think i can handle it um you know they, you know i haven't had the total lobotomy from carl school so um okay so for the uh, famous blasters and blades uh, religion question um, Star Wars, Star Trek, or Firefly? Over. Does it have to be one of those three? No, it um, does not. So I, I will say up front, and, and this is actually a debate we have in the Department of Space Power here at ACSE, um, and the overwhelming sentiment is Star Trek because 
Star Wars is is fantasy, not science fiction. Um, <laughs> okay. I, I will I will admit my earliest memory, not just of a movie or or series, but my earliest absolute memory is being four years old and waiting in line to see Star Wars when it first came out, the original Star Wars. Um, and, you know, that scene when the Star Destroyers first opening and, and firing on the, the counselor ship, that forever, you know, got me hooked on science fiction. And so I have a special place in my heart for, for Star Wars. Um, having said that, I'm one of those jerks that hates everything since the original trilogy. And if, if I have to... You're in good company here. Absolutely. <laughs> if, if I have to pick one series that I could watch over and over and over again, um, of those three, it would be Firefly. But if, if I could go outside those three, it would actually probably be Stargate. Oh, um, excellent choice. And, you know, I, I just, the, the stories, the, you know, the acting is sometimes iffy, but I just, it, it's, maybe it's the Air Force side of me that I've bought into the Kool-Aid and, and Stargate is, is Air Force, but, uh, like I said, if, if if there was one series I had to watch over and over and over again, that would probably be the one. Did you like Stargate Universe? I liked Atlantis Universe, eh, not so much. Okay, that's fair. So the um, I like the premise. I just didn't think they pulled it off very well. Yeah, they kept getting. Are we going to continue or not? So I think they got jerked around, and then they went to where all good shows go to die, otherwise known as Fox News. Uh, not Fox News, Fox. Whatever their uh, entertainment, Fox Entertainment, there we go. Because uh, all the good shows go there, they get mismanaged, then they die, and they wonder why no one watches them, because they don't put them on at the same time. So they didn't really have a chance to find their footing. I well, think. it seems lately like those end up on getting rebooted on Hulu or something like that, so you never know. Um, and it's, uh, it's it's interesting that you bring up Stargate, too. A uh, real quick uh, story about that. So I've actually spent time inside Cheyenne Mountain. Um, which, contrary to the movie War Games, actually looks more like the uh, well, the Navy did in fact build it, so it's actually a battleship inside a mountain, and it looks like it. But um, I, I actually know where Star, uh, Stargate Command is. It's on one of the men's rooms on the uh, one of the lower floors. They got a big patch zap on the men's room door. <laughs> That's awesome. Do they make the toilet have like the ring so when you aim? I, uh, you know, I think uh, if I had to spend four hours or more in that place, I might need it. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you can grow up, but you can't take the grunt out of me because I still laugh at potty humor. What can I say? All right, Chris, save me from myself. Ask the next question. All right. So we're going to flip things around a little bit. Uh, so from the more fantastic side, I go with Star Wars science fantasy, but neither here nor there. Game of Thrones, The Wheel of Time, or Conan the Barbarian. Um, you know, this might be the point where you, you kick me off the show. I have never read Wheel of Time, any of these books in the series. Um, I, for some reason, I just, I missed that. I was in a parallel universe when, the, when that came out or was popular. Um, of those three, God, Game of Thrones really sucked me in. Um, and I, I love the fact that there's like everybody good becomes bad at some point and everybody bad becomes good at some point. But I don't know that I could go through it again. Um, of those three, probably Conan. Um, especially if we're talking so, about old school Conan. So that was the one I was referring to. So first off, if you were in a parallel universe, that means the Stargate is real people. You heard it here first. Uh, just saying. And uh, 
I started thinking about the Star Wars question where you answered all the original three were your favorites. I will say, are you familiar with the podcast, The Angry Staff Officers? I Is that related to the Twitter feed of the same name? I believe so. It's a bunch of uh, former military that uh, got out at uh, major, and so they ended their career as staff officers. And they tend to analyze uh, history and um, fiction through the lens of logistics. So they actually analyzed Rogue Squad, or was it not Rogue Squadron? Rogue One. Is that the is that the one, Chris, where they landed on the planet to take? Um, that's the one where they um, how they originally acquired the the, uh, the Death Star plans, but all anybody yeah. remembers is the uh, where the the end where Vader goes beast mode on body. Yeah, so they analyzed that one and they said it's the only one where Star Wars and George Lucas got it right when it comes to considering logistics and how that affected everything. So it got at least a meh from the angry staff officers, and they're generally very critical. I mean, like they hammered that crap out of um, George Martin's. Uh, Game of Thrones and why none of that made tactical sense at the end. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, you know, it's funny you brought up uh, Wheel of Time. I never got into that either. I took one look at the size of those books and I was like, yeah, no. But I have read the, uh, you know, Robert E. Howard uh, Conan series and uh, a little bit of some of his other guys, you know, Brand MacMorn and uh, um, what was his name? Solomon Kane and all that kind of stuff. So I, I enjoy the old stuff too. I think that's and, just and the I mean, same. We're all old. The, the Conan movies are great, too. You can't go wrong with Arnold and, and you know, running around with their shirt off or whatever. Okay, okay. So we here at the Blasters and Blades love both the scientific and the fantastical, but what was your first love? Was it sci-fi or fantasy? It goes back and forth. Um, as really young, it was it was science fiction. I was super into Star Wars. As I got older and started reading and getting into um, fiction, I, I mean, I dove into, um, uh, C.S. Lewis and, and Narnia and all the Tolkien books. I really got into the Xanth series with, uh, Ooh. uh, Pierce Anthony, uh, yeah, good one. Night, Nightmare and Ogre, Ogre. I mean, that, that was probably the, the first real series that I, I got into and couldn't wait for the next one to come out. Um, Guardians of the Flame was another one. Um, that was a really cool series that that actually kind of got me interested in like Dungeons and Dragons types of games. Um, but nowadays it's almost exclusively science fiction. Um, and I think that's more related to my job uh, talking about space. There's there's to me a little bit more natural connection between the two. I still love my uh, fantasy role playing video games and and I, I'm dying to see the new Dungeons and Dragons movie. Um, but at this point in, in my life, I lean a little bit more towards the, the science fiction. Okay. Um, so what is it about speculative fiction as a genre, uh, as an umbrella term, and specifically science fiction, since that's your current passion that you love so much? Um, the Well, the, the ones that I do love, what I love about them is they're the really good ones, in my, in my opinion, take... Um, a problem that the author knows about or has experienced and puts that in a different time or a different place and changes a couple of variables just to see what if we do something different, how does it come out differently? Um, one of the best examples of that uh, is uh, Haldeman's Forever War, okay. which you know, is, is about future war, but it, it is basically his experience in Vietnam um, and down to you know how he's treated when he comes back home, not feeling like he's part of society anymore, even though he hasn't been gone very long in his 
perspective. I mean, it's just those kinds of things. How do we solve problems that, that we're experiencing today or that the author has experienced if we just change a couple factors, change a couple things around? Um, that, that to me is where science fiction is, is really powerful. And, and you, know, you could say much too for David Drake in that context, the uh, same thing, turning his um, Vietnam experiences into the Hammer Slimer series back in the day. And I think um, that's a real good thread that the um, GE guys, Galaxy's Edge guys hit on for the G-Watch generation. Honestly, I think that that's one of the reasons why what they do resonates uh, so well with them. Yeah, I think our experience during the GWAT era in the military is vastly different than what became before and what came after. They let us get away with some. For first an example, some of the stuff we got away with pulling because we were operational all the time, like in peacetime, like it would have been an entirely different story. So I think it created a different culture. But you mentioned that uh, from what I got from what you liked about science fiction, it sounded like you liked to read stories from the everyman perspective. Was that right? Or do you like the sort of the God's eye view when you read? Um, I, I don't know if I have a favorite. I, I, I like both if it's well-written, if it, if it sort of keeps my attention and makes me think in ways I haven't thought about before. Um, that's I mean, I, this is jumping ahead a little bit, but one of the other things I really like about science fiction is it forces you to think in creative ways. Okay. Um, and I, I really like using that with my students because it gets them out of their comfort zone and, and, you know, trying to solve problems in ways that maybe they hadn't thought of before. And, um, you know, science fiction is one of the best ways to kind of train your brain to do that. I think I noticed that the first time I wrote the prequel to the very first series I wrote, I had a battle in a space station and as, you know, former infantryman and as a, you know, I, I led nine grunts myself. I started thinking, crap, everything I know about tactics doesn't work because one, you can't shoot through the walls. That's very bad if you expose yourself to vacuum. And two, now you've got to think in three dimension. So none of our formations work. And so I actually spent probably a month trying to think of what formations might look like if you had to think in three dimensions. So I, it, you don't realize it until you actually start trying to think in those terms and, and sort of apply what you think you know to that. Yeah, absolutely. So did you notice that yourself, Chris, when you were writing your sci-fi, or do you think your Air Force experience sort of uh, vaccinated you against that, inoculated you? Uh, more like the other, your situation, flip it around, because uh, I'm not a grunt. Um, you know, um, I did one deployment with um, Air Force cops uh, doing um, uh, doing base defense and coin stuff in Iraq, but um, every the rest of my career has been supporting aviation or doing uh, uh, command and control at the operational level in the staff, so... Um, I can write, you know, from the, the three-dimensional perspective, uh, you know, with a little help, and I've gotten that assistance here and here from other authors we know. Um, but then trying to drill back down and write something from that tactical door-kicking standpoint, that's actually where I've had to slow down and go out and get uh, help from others. But, you know, that's sort of like how I actually got pulled in was to help bridge the gap between some of the writers we know in common, they are, and help them out with yeah. the expertise they didn't have. I will say that the, uh, the the boots on the ground Air Force guys, because I we were my unit in Iraq was replaced by one of those. Man, they were asked to do a lot with very little training and very little equipment, and getting our hands off the hand me downs that the Army wanted to just get rid of. So it's like, oh sure, we'll give it to the Air Force, uh, which normally the Air Force is known for having the nicest stuff. But when we were in Iraq, that was not the case, uh, and we had some of the um, uh, the drivers from the Air Force side that were literally. Oh, you're just going to drive pilots to and from the Air Force, uh, airports or whatever was what they thought Motor T and the Air Force meant. And suddenly you throw them in the middle of downtown Baghdad at the height of the the war. And it was like, oh, man, that's not what they thought they signed up for. So I, I had a lot of respect for what those Air Force guys had to do. 
I mean, cause at least we had the training, right? Like I didn't have to learn in the middle of a firefight. Oh crap. I got to set the headspace and timing on my 50 cal. Um, so yeah, it's and, definitely a different experience. And, and a, a lot of times too is, um, you know, when you, you're writing things that are like more from the bigger level, like the, uh, the theater level, for example, like now we're not just talking about a single battle. We're talking about the course of an entire campaign or like in the case of some stuff I wrote for Bane, looking at a, uh, continent-wide offensive that's going on from the, uh, you know, the commanding officer's standpoint. So, which I think will probably feed a lot into Dr. Miller's uh, work here a little bit, um, perhaps as we get, so, get a little further on. So, so diving into that, how do you think your love of speculative fiction, how do you integrate that into your work in academia and national security, Greg? Um, I, I don't know that I have until this book. Um, and in some ways, this book was kind of cathartic for me because it allowed me to do that. Um, most of my work before has been very just sort of academic, um, theoretical, or, or um, hopefully in some cases practical. But um, this is the first time I've really been able to incorporate science fiction. Um, now, I, you know, I do think going back to my previous point, I do think a lot of my work is more creative because of the fact that I read fairly vigorously, um, you know, fiction. I think some of my previous work, I like to think some of my previous work countered conventional wisdom and, and challenged things that people were thinking at the time. And I, I do attribute that a little bit to science fiction, but um, until this book, I haven't really been able to incorporate it directly. Okay. Was that a, a enjoyable experience to be able to do that finally? I, absolutely. I mean, this book is is sort of the culmination of all the things that I enjoy doing in academia. It's a little international relations. It's a little history. It's a little science fiction. Um, and, you know, it, it, luckily I had a, an editor at Naval Institute Press that not only sort of prompted me to do it, but then encouraged me. And, and so this was great. Great. Does the uh, is the Air Force have their own institute press, or does it, all the military sort of use the the Navy one? No, they do. Um, there is an Air University Press, um, and it publishes quite a bit of books, some good ones. Um, but uh, I I had a couple of connections at Naval Institute. The actually the 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 uh, main person who uh, kind of inspired me to write this and and. Uh, worked on it was at University of Oklahoma Press at the time when I first started it. He moved over to Naval Institute and was basically, I want to take this book with me. Um, and so that's how it got there. Okay. That's, right. that's fair. Um, so, so doctor, um, a lot of authors um, such as JR myself, we uh, let uh, real life experiences um, influence the stories we tell. So are there any specific moments that really uh, shaped you and your, and your, uh, your work, something really foundational for you? from your own life? Um, I, you know, I, I don't know, not directly about the, the stories or the books themselves. Um, <clears throat> one of the things that I, I realized as I was writing this book is all, most of my academic career, I've been very pessimistic and cynical um, and, you know, very realist, you know, states are selfish, people are selfish, you know, the, the future is, is bleak. Um, and about, 
a little, a little over seven years ago, seven and a half years ago, um, my son was born. And then I came to ACSC. I started working on space. And there's just there's a ton of optimism uh, surrounding space, especially the people who are, are teaching it and working in it. Um, and I just I got consumed by that. And, and so I guess those, those experiences, um, you know, becoming a dad again, changing jobs, coming to, to uh, teach for uh, people in the space concentration here just really kind of changed my perspective on the future. And uh, I, I think that shows up a little bit in this book, a lot in this book, actually. Okay. That's, that's funny. You say you're an opt, you're sort of an optimist too. It's like, um, I admit I'm a bit of a classical realist myself, um, but I try to not be as just like you to try to not be uh, entirely cynical about it. You know, like, like the old saying goes, um, all theories are, are wrong. Some theories are useful, right? Or all models, however you want to look at it. Um, for next question on that, sort of uh, feeding into this one is, um, what do you think is the interplay for your time actually instructing uh, military students and how does that bleed back into your, your professional writing? Um, I, I mean, it's one of the reasons I love teaching in professional military education. I, I learned so much from my students. Um, before I, I started working on space, um, I spent the first almost two decades of my academic career studying terrorism, writing about terrorism, teaching about terrorism. That's probably part of the reason I was so pessimistic about everything. Um, and But I mean, the great thing about that is I would walk into a class with a bunch of majors, lieutenant colonels, colonels, and learn a ton of stuff from them on the practical side, whereas most of mine was, was very theoretical and academic. Um, and the same is true now doing space. I mean, I've got um, acquisitions and, and space operators and uh, JAG and, you know, all these different career fields in our, in our program. Um, and every single day I walk in the classroom, I have things that I'm hopefully teaching them, but I, I walk out of there usually smarter um, for it. And so I, I think that plays into the, the stuff that I write. I hope it does. Um, I hope it makes it a little bit more useful and practical to those students, because that ultimately is what we're trying to do here is, is give them some tools in their, their toolkit to go out and um, not necessarily fight wars, but, but be more strategic in their thinking how to avoid wars. So you mentioned that you started in space terrorism. So or terrorism, and then you moved to space. Um, have you are you familiar with the Halo franchise that started with the video games and then became the the books and movies? I I'm familiar with it. Yeah, they actually started that series with the idea of space terrorism because that's what the Halo Master Chief program, which actually the Spartan programs, were designed to do to counter the insurrectionists. So there are people even thinking about what that terrorism looks like in a world where we're space bound. Uh, so there's ways for you to merge those two as well. Yeah. And one of my, one of my first articles, actually my first article about space um, was basically um, future guerrillas, insurgents and space pirates drawing on a lot of that work that I had done on terrorism and, and applying it to the future. Um, so yeah, there one of the things that I see myself as contributing to the field of space is, is the things that I've done before this, uh, the international relations, the strategy, the terrorism stuff, and how does that apply to our understanding of space in the future? Okay. Sorry to interrupt, Chris. I just questioned. Yeah, that was awesome. That was great because the um, next question was going to be about how, like, the interaction with your students, is that affecting what you choose to read now? 
is that affecting your reading list and uh, what you gravitate towards? I, yeah, I mean, directly. Um, one of the electives I teach here is called science fiction and strategy. And every year it, it fills up. I've got 10 or 12 students uh, in the class every year. And at the end of the class, I'll say, what are what are the four or five books I need to read before I teach this class again? And, um, you know, it, almost every year I end up changing the, the course syllabus because of books they recommend. Uh, at a minimum, I, I open those books. And, and because of that, I've found some really good books that I otherwise wouldn't have picked up. Um, Children of Time is a really good one um, that a student recommended. And, and um, I just I devoured that in a weekend, even though it's like 600 pages. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the students are directly affecting that part of my reading list. Um, probably that that's the most direct way I can think of. Okay. So your book uh, is a call for military officers to expand their horizons and read science fiction in addition to nonfiction, something many uh, professional military types tend to be dismissive of. Dismissive of. Um, what kind of reaction have you gotten from those who've read your book uh, with that as your recommendation? Um, well, I mean, the book isn't really out yet. I mean, it's available on Kindle, but the hard right. copy isn't available for another week and a half. Um, so I haven't really gotten a lot of, uh, of feedback yet. Um, a couple of my colleagues have, have read it um, and they seem to like it, but I'm also their supervisor. So they have to say that um, <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm trying to avoid the Goodreads review pages. Um, so I, I don't really know what the feedback is yet, but I'm, I'm hoping it'll be positive. And I, I'm hoping that that'll at least generate a conversation about the, the value, not just of science fiction, but of, of just broadening our reading lists. Um, and I'm not the first person to talk about that. There's a, a retired Australian army general, Mick Ryan, who's been talking about that for probably a decade now um, and, and was doing that even when he was still active duty. And, and so I think there is a recognition that there's value in just reading. Um, regardless of, of what it is, challenge your, your preconceptions, challenge your perceptions of the world. Um, but I mean, for me, the best way to do that is science fiction, because it, it in, like I said, in the really good ones, it, it does relate to real world problems. It does parallel things that we're dealing with today. You just have to identify where, what are those parallels and, and what is the author really trying to say? So the Marine Corps actually does something like that already. They, they pair science fiction authors with military personnel that sort of come up with books or stories. I think it's short stories for an anthology they do every year. I can't remember the name of it. I will find it and write that down in the show notes for you, dear listener. But there are, there are already people starting to think about what the implication of speech or of space is for the future. Um, and not just from the military side, even from the, um, from the, you know, human side, uh, you know, for those of you who are religious per uh, forgive me if I get this wrong, but I remember in high school reading that the College of Cardinals was talking about how, uh, and I could be getting the names wrong, but how we would react to if we just find life out there. Because, you know, sentient life aside, there's we're still likely to run into amoebas at a minimum. And so how you determine if it's a space cow and you can eat it or it's one of God's creatures and it's, you know, your equal kind of thing. And it got me realizing that lots of people are grappling with what might, you know, leaving terra firma uh, due to our preconceived ideas of the world, 
And Chris, I know you're very Catholic, so if you wanted to correct me uh, how I got that, because uh, we've talked about this before, I just can't remember the terms. No, I, I know what you're talking about. I got to go back and try to find the uh, try to find the article you're talking about specifically, because yeah, I was I was thinking about that too. Um, and as far as the whole like uh, you know just building out the reading list, um, I think what 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 it's impressive to do is to you know like like Dr. Miller said, you got to get across you got to get across. I don't want to, I, I, I hate the overuse of the word genre, but yeah, you got to get across genre and you got to get across subject and a bit interdisciplinary with it. And I think that that goes a long way to understanding the world too. And, um, it's, it's funny because, um, especially with the, uh, the books coming out, you know, now and, um, with the current generation of service members that are either just coming in or just leaving, it's pretty, or just leaving and sailing off in the retirement and like, I'll be in the not too distant future that that difference of perspective between us is, uh, is interesting as well. Absolutely. Well, so go ahead. And back to, back to, I think what maybe this, the start of your question, I mean, there, there is skepticism about a, a course like this science fiction and strategy, right? I mean, taxpayers are not paying officers to come read science fiction. Um, it, and, and I think that, that's probably not exclusive to the military. I mean, if I was teaching a course like this at a civilian university, there would be people that would question its validity. Um, the reality is if you look at my syllabus, students are reading a novel every week. We spend three hours in class dissecting the novel and, and the, the people in it, who's a good leader, who's a bad leader, who's a strategic thinker and, and why, um, you know, what, what types of, of policies are they trying to enact? What are their ends? Um, you know, whether the civil male relations implications of these things. I mean, I, I try to tie it to the, the core curriculum so that there's a direct connection. Um, but also they're just, because they embrace the course, they're reading four or 500 pages a week that they otherwise might not read. Um, and to me, that's the real value of it. So I'm assuming that if you're putting them on the syllabus, you've read these books too. Um, I figure that's a fair assessment. Have any of your students convinced convinced you to change your mind on various characters when you're going through these discussions? Um, yeah, they have it. I mean, your assumption's wrong. Sometimes this is the, the dirty secret behind the, the door. Sometimes professors will put books on the syllabus uh, to force us to read the books we want to read. Um, <laughs> okay. And, and I'm guilty of that. Um, I, I read it before the class starts, but not always before I put it on the syllabus. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I can't necessarily think of a, a specific example right now where a student changed my mind, but I know there have been some um, through, there's a book uh, called Robopocalypse, which is very similar to like uh, World War Z, if you've read that um, by Max Brooks, um, but it's, it's robots instead of zombies. And, um, you know, the, I, I, I don't want to spoil the story, but in talking to the students, I think they convinced me that the purpose, the whole AI's purpose behind everything that it does is actually different than what it seems when you first read through it. Um, and, and so that's, that's one example that comes to mind. Um, I think there's, you know, we always talk about uh, Colonel Graf in Ender's Game, you know, how, how ethical he is using the children to achieve a, a greater objective. Um, I, I sort of flip flop on that, um, depending on, on how persuasive the students are in a particular class. So yeah, that, that happens. I mean, I, I, I think I'm open-minded enough that, 
that I can be swayed by a compelling argument. And as far mm-hmm. as like the, the, the anthologies you were mentioned, JR, um, I know the Marine Corps had that program, like you're right. It was like Marine Corps futures program or something. The army had that because I think Dr. Rob Hampson uh, participated in that. And so did Chuck Gannon. And then the, uh, I know he did the Marine Corps one. And then the Air Force made an attempt at it a few years ago. And I actually submitted the story for that. It was the first time I was going to try and get some uh, fiction published. Back was back when I was a major. Uh, that didn't seem to get off the ground very far. But uh, hey, you never know. Uh, Doc, Dr. Miller's course here might convince the Air Force to give it another go. Okay. And I will track down as much of that as I can, dear listener, including the, uh, the anger staff officer. So if you want to check that stuff out yourself, it's definitely worth the time. So... I know we ask these questions generally to, to writers that are writing, um, you know, the, the fiction, but sometimes people like nonfiction enough that they want them signed. So has anybody asked for your autograph since you started writing academically? Uh, I mean, yes, technically, again, um, a, a couple of people that I work with have, have asked me to sign the book. That's sort of a, a token gesture that academics do when, when we get a book published. It's Sort of like when an officer gets promoted, he takes everybody out for drinks. Uh, we we pass out a copy of our book and sign it. Um, but not like in an airport or, you know, randomly on the street where somebody sees me and asks for my autograph. Nothing like that. <laughs> yeah, you're not in the side chat, uh, dear listener, but uh, Denote is telling us that his 06 promotion party was very pricey. <laughs> We had it easy. We just go to the as an NCO, just go to the NCO club and have a few drinks, and it didn't cost me that much. Hey, yeah, Mister Wallet was definitely hurting that day. Um, let's just say that. <laughs> so, were was the uh, were you when you were promoted? Was it during an operational tempo? Because that was luckily for me. That's partly why it was so cheap. Because uh, everyone was coming and going. Was that your situation oh, no. as well? Uh, no, 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 that was in Garrison. So uh, everybody was uh, everybody decided to be my friend that day. <laughs> okay, all right. So since you've started writing, because obviously there's the publisher parish mindset in a lot of academic circles when it comes to professors. Um, what was the most impactful uh, interaction you've had with readers of your work, and in, including this one or anything you've published previously since you started writing? Um, I. So the quick story, long story made short, um, there's, when I first started teaching in PME, I went for about five years without writing much. I was just, I was consumed with learning the acronyms and, you know, learning the combatant commands and things that were, uh, learning how to use DTS, all the the bureaucratic stuff and, and teaching a ton. And I just didn't have a lot of time for writing. Um, and I, I, one day just posted a comment on social media. I think it was Facebook and said something like, you know, I love teaching for PME. I just, I, I never get to write and it's not a priority and it bums me out. Um, Just, you know, venting like we sometimes do on social media and somebody who I'm, I'm friends with on social media and know, you know, very um, minimally, but is a professor that I admire, look up to, to his work. He, commented on that and basically said something like that that's a shame because you do really good work and I, I, I want to see more of it um and and that for me I think was was kind of a trigger it uh more than anything else may killed my imposter syndrome that I was still walking around with a little bit as as an academic and um basically from that point I've I've 
been writing not nonstop, but, but pretty heavily. Um, and, and most of my publications have actually been more than half of my publications have been since he said that five years ago. Um, so that was maybe the most influential thing that's happened to me, you know, academically in that sense. So speaking of that writing, can you give us the reader's digest version of uh, your body of work? Sure. Uh, this is the part where we jump the shark and everyone tunes out and goes and gets a snack. Um, <laughs> mo most of my work is, I mean, all my work is academic in some respects and, and I, you know, academic in, in both the positive and the negative sense, I guess. Um, the, like I said, the first uh, decade and a half of my career really focused on terrorism and international relations. I, I spent a lot of time writing about reputation. That was actually my, my first book, um, was built off my dissertation and was about international reputations, whether states benefit from having a good reputation or suffer costs from having a bad reputation. Um, I've written about energy security and some of the, the sort of unconventional ways of thinking about going uh, independent of uh, importing oil from other countries. Um, a lot of my work focuses on deterrence of one form or another, um, deterring terrorist groups, deterring uh, threats in space, comparing space deterrence to nuclear deterrence. Um, I have a, a piece on uh, sort of an uh, odd way of thinking about orbital debris, um, despite okay. the fact that despite the fact that it's a problem. I actually argue that um, there's a, a security risk involved in getting rid of orbital debris. It actually is, uh, while it exists, it acts as a little bit of a deterrent from engaging in kinetic attacks in space. And so getting rid of it will remove that deterrent. Um, and Interesting. Then, you know, there, there's the Space Pirate article that that I'm really fond of. Um, so I, I, I've been sort of a jack of all trades. I kind of go where I'm, I'm interested, um, jumping around from terrorism to strategy to now space. Um, again, hopefully having some practical application, but like most academic work, probably, you know, it's a good day if three or four people ever read it, so. All right, well, that's fair. Thank you for, uh, for giving that highlight. And before we dive into Sun Tzu in Space, which is the novel that brought us here, we're gonna pause for a moment while we shamelessly shill for the man. So thank you, Cheney, for uh, sponsoring this episode. Van, I know this is hard for you to accept or even believe, but you're not imagining this. You're not going crazy. Your grandfather believed right down to the core of his being in protecting those who couldn't protect themselves. You expect me to believe that my grandfather was a star-faring soldier? I can prove it to you. And how are you going to do that? by taking you for a flight. Whenever you're ready, Van.
All right. I am very jealous that Podium made that uh, Podium Publishing made that commercial for them. Chris, we need something like that for stuff we write. It's just not fair. Is it, know, anyone else getting sure. a Lost Starfighter vibe off of that? I did too I, when I first saw it. Too. I, it gets me every time. I've seen it several times because they've sponsored a few shows. Uh, but yeah, Chris, uh, now it's on to you. And, and if you're listening, dear listener, when we get off script that we normally use, which was the intro, this is all Chris's big brain stuff. So we're going to give him a round of applause for his help on this one. Um, wow. Okay. Appreciate it. Um, so uh, something I wanted to bring up too, Dr. Miller, is, um, hey, I want to pick your brain on that Space Debris article at a later date, you know, from a day job sense. That'd be, uh, I've got some questions for you on that one. All right. Um, but that, okay, that, can wait for, that can wait for down the road. All right, so for, nah. <laughs> so for um, for talking about uh, Sun Tzu in space, uh, a couple quick ones for you here on that. Um, one, where'd you get the premise? Um, is it going to be a standalone, or is it going to like help you kickstart a series, something like a Clausewitz in space follow up, or something like that? Um, so, how's you? Um, what what drove you to that particular title and uh, theme? Um. <sighs> I, I don't really know, to be honest. Um, it just, it's, it seemed like a good title for a book. I, I don't want to say that I started with a title and then wrote the book, but um, it, it may have happened that way. Um, I, I actually started with the, the, the premise of how do we take the past and, and apply that to the future? How do we understand our future based on what we've already been through as, as a human race? Um, and one of the things we teach here is, is Sun Tzu's Art of War. Um, and it just, it seemed like his maxims were ripe for applying to the future. And so it all, it all just kind of came together that way. Um, I don't actually remember where that title came from, which is maybe horrible. Um, it's like forgetting your child's name or something, but, um, yeah, that was, that was, uh, it, Maybe it came in an epiphany and in a dream. Um, what, what was the second part of the question? Oh, sorry. Second part was it? Um, is this? Are you going to do follow ups to this? Uh, along right, right. Yeah, I, I probably yes. I'm 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 already writing a book. I've already talked to Naval Institute Press about a follow up. I, I don't think it's going to be Clausewitz in space or uh, you know hard in in orbit. Um, there, there's what I'm, I'm thinking of doing, what I would like to do is take some of the ideas that are very big and, and broad and theoretical in this book and write a book that is uh, more of a practical, how do we get to these future scenarios that, that I've identified would be po more positive than negative. Um, right now, the working title is Strategy in a Vacuum. And uh, it's basically, you know, how do we write a, a strategy for space to achieve the kind of futures that would be beneficial um, as opposed to the ones that would sort of keep us in the in the pessimistic world that we tend to be in historically. Um, so, yes there's, a, yes, there's a follow on, not really a sequel, though. OK, that's interesting. You bring up a much more of a how do we get from here to there? It almost sounds like something more like you'd get from a, a strategic forecasting uh, type uh, outfit, like, say, a Stratfor or somebody almost like that. Yeah, maybe. I mean, it's one of the one of the courses I teach here is is strategy, uh, strategic decision making. And um, we give our students hand on hands on uh, experience developing a strategy. 
And, um, I, you know, I think there's value in doing that. There's, there's a lot written about strategy, but there's a lot that doesn't necessarily translate to the real world. There's a lot in doctrine that is just very dry and, and not very useful in my view. So I, I think there's a place to kind of bridge the gap between the, the big strategic writings and the strategic doctrine, but um, also, you know, applying it to space, which I, I think there's value in doing. Um, you know, if we want to achieve a, a Star Trek Federation type of future, uh, where all of us come together to, to deal with our problems, right? We, we need a plan for how to get there. And so that that's tentatively the book that I'm, I'm writing right now. We'll see if that's how it turns out. Star Trek had me at the holodeck, just saying. All right, sorry to interrupt, Chris. No, we're good. I mean, we, we kind of have that with virtual reality. It, it's getting there. Do you think so, I know a lot of people uh it makes them sick at this point it's so it's not it hasn't crossed that line yet well you know I think um well you almost answered this um in, in your in your previous answer there but um what is kind of, who is kind of like your target audience for this book coming out is it for the strategy practitioner is it more for the layman um could um is it something that uh, could be um presented even down at say a high school or a collegiate level let alone um, practice, you know, practicing uh, service members. Yeah, I mean, my goal when writing this, I, I had multiple audiences in mind. The, the primary one was sort of the graduate level international relations or history, history uh, student or scholar that likes science fiction and wants to figure out how to kind of tie their hobby, their interest into their, their career. Um, I, I was hoping that there would be some PME, um, professional military education interest in it, um, because I, I think it's a fairly straightforward guide to international relations, which most PME institutions teach in some form or another. But um, I, I think it's a, a fun way to do it as opposed to the sort of uh, old school journal articles. Um, I, I think it's accessible to high school, uh, college, they, they might get a little lost in some of the language, especially in the international relations sections. Um, but, but, you know, each chapter is sort of modular in a sense. It starts with a, a future scenario. Then it has the international relations that are related to that scenario. Then it has the history that sort of parallels or the, that that scenario parallels in our past. And then it dives into the science fiction that are connected uh, to the story. And so, Somebody who was interested just in the science fiction could read the opening scenario and the section on science fiction and skip over the, the boring academic-y stuff. Um, and so I, I think it's accessible to a wide audience, but um, really my, my primary target were the people who were studying this and, and just wanted a little more hands-on understanding of, of how they all tie together. Hey, I figure... Um tying together your work, you know, your, your day job and your hobby is never a bad thing. Um, I got to do my war college, um, capstone on wargaming. So, you know, I've got to do, got a two for one on that. So I, I feel you on that one. Definitely. Um, I, JR had a good question here about the, uh, the cover earlier. Can you, uh, tell us a little bit about how you got that? Yeah. I mean, that was just, um, that's a NASA photo. Um, astronaut Scott Kelly took that, uh, I want to say 2015, 2016, when he was up in the International Space Station. So it's it's NASA, it's public domain. I happened to find it when I was just scouring pictures of space to see what it, you know, 
what would be a good cover for the book. And then Naval Institute Press did their magic and and made it into a cover. Um, so it's it's just you know astronaut Scott Kelly's photograph from the ISS. That um, there's supposed to be some some uh, report coming out soon that they haven't released to the public that I know of about Scott Kelly because if I'm remembering correctly, he's the one that had a twin that spent uh, down on Earth while he was in orbit for the year and comparing yeah. Yeah. Uh, comparing you know in a more clinical way exactly what the effect space has on the body. So I'm I'm curious to see how that plays out. Have you uh, have you followed that as well? I I'm aware of it. I I haven't seen a report. I don't know what the findings are. I know preliminarily, um, I think I heard that he had some vision issues that his twin didn't have. I mean, his twin is now a Senator. Um, and so, you know, pretty, pretty useful family there. Um, but, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see that, that you don't get too many twins where one goes up in space and one doesn't, you can sort of use them as test subjects to see how space affects the body. And do it ethically, because that's the problem with test subjects is, you know, those pesky medical ethics. Yeah, only if you tell people you're doing it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. only. So, all right, Chris, that, it's still you. All right. Um, so I, I'm actually curious to hear, to hear how you do this. Um, so what's your sort of um, real quick 30-second elevator pitch for the books, like to help, uh, to help us spread the word around and uh, drum up some interest for you? How should we uh, talk about it to people? Uh, 30 second elevator pitch. All right. Um, how do we use what we know about our history to try to understand our possible futures and direct us in the one that's going to provide us with the most benefit for the least cost, or at least benefit the most people um, in a number of different ways, avoiding conflict and violence, um, promoting standard of living, getting us out into outer space so we aren't um, you know, all stuck on this one planet in, in the event of a catastrophe. Um, you know, just thinking through some of the, the big ideas of how do we get to where we want to be in the future. Okay. And okay. Um, without spoiling sort of the scenarios you've put in there, is there a particular sci-fi author that you think has gotten things, we'll say, more or mostly right in terms of uh, predicting the present day and future thus far? Um and, and, and whether or not that influenced you? Um, I, honestly, I mean, the, the, the way that I approach this book, each scenario draws on different ways of, of thinking about science fiction. And so, um, you know, the first chapter is, is a very offensive realist focus. Imagine there's a, a scenario where there's one major power in space, one hegemon um, that controls all of, of space. Um, you know, and, and we have a number of examples of that uh, where you have, you know, galactic empires and, and you know, the Padisha Emperor and Dune. Um, there's a lot of, of authors who kind of get that right if that's one of the futures. Um, there's another scenario focuses on a situation where you, you don't have states involved anymore in space. It's all private corporations. Um, and what would that future look like? And there's um, a number of stories that are, are similar to that. There's a, um, a TV series called Dark Matter, where a lot of the primary actors were corporations. Um, you know, you've got the, the big bad corporation in the Alien series, um, right? And so it's hard to say there's one author that gets it right because we don't know what that future is going to look like. 
I think when we look back, it will be able to say, hey, that author got it more right than everybody else because this is how it turned out. Um, and what I'm trying to what I tried to do in the seven scenarios I present in the book is talk about each of some of the authors that that um, are related to each of those possible futures. Okay, let's see. So okay. speaking, oh, just uh, one more piece on this, and then I'll hand it back to Jr. So um, your in your talk here, and also in the uh, actual written uh, description of the book. Uh, pulling it off the web page you, you mentioned the cyclical nature of history so i, I one uh, that got me thinking about um, how do you think your readers should think about the past as we experience what really seems to be accelerating technological and geopolitical change i mean if anything the rate of change seems to be vastly outpacing over the last uh, few years you know um what we've even had in the previous 20 uh from a personal point of view but if how do you tie that back into a, a cyclical view on history? Um, I that sounds like a war college comps question. If, if that's where <laughs> you're getting that, um, it's what we do. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it's the kind of thing that we that we talk about with our students, especially here in, in the space concentration. I mean, the the historian in me will say that every era has thought that their technology was progressing at an unprecedented pace and, and, you know, society was forever going to change. And it, and it does, um, you know, it's hard for us now to put ourselves in the situation of, you know, soldiers first seeing airplanes flying overhead in, in battle or, um, you know, sailors first seeing aircraft carriers on, on the oceans. Um, yes, technology seems to be progressing and, and, doing so more rapidly than ever. But I don't know that the chaos that that seems to be creating is any different than it than it has in the past. Um, and I think that's always going to be the case. 100 years from now, people are going to be saying, look how fast technology is advancing compared to what it was at the beginning of the 21st century. Um, and so I, I think history still provides us a lot of important lessons, even if it's true that technology is is advancing faster today than it was the the way that people dealt with new technology, the way that nations used it or didn't use it, um, those can still provide us really important lessons. In that first chapter uh, on hegemony with the, the one dominant actor, um, I talk about the Roman Empire and you know some of the reasons that it rose and fell. I talk about the British Empire and, and the same thing. Why did it rise? Why did it fall? We can learn those lessons because if we want a future where the United States is a, is a, you know, cislunar or solar hegemon, um, we can learn what those empires have done wrong and, and try to avoid those mistakes. Um, and likewise, if, if some other country is trying to be the, the solar hegemon, we can learn how the Gauls defeated the Romans and, and, you know, take the lessons from the other side and try to prevent it from happening. So I, I, I think history still has value, even in a, an unprecedented age. Um, but you know, I am sort of a closet historian, and so that that's maybe that part of me talking. That's fair, and, I, and I'm a history nerd myself. Went to college for it, even, um, and now I'm actually using it on a podcast. So, see, mom, I can use my degree. Um, but the so one of the things they've talked about, and they've actually done some research, is the how people learn about technology. And there's a difference between people that ex are exposed to technology and their 
mid to later life versus people that grow up with technology versus people where it was just always there. So for instance, people that initially started driving the automobile tried to understand how the combustion engine worked, et cetera, et cetera. Whereas we grew up, automobiles were always just a thing and we just did it. The same applies with technology, smartphone, et cetera. Do you think that's going to play a factor with how we develop things? Because I could see uh, Terry Mixon is a sci-fi author I absolutely adore. One of the things he wrote in one of his books was the idea that the Naval Academy was just going to give simulated games to, to with all the tech that they had just acquired because it's a, a Galactic Empire refound sort of story, his Empire of Bones, was they'll give it to the kids because they don't know what the rules are supposed to be and what they're not supposed to be able to do. So they find creative ideas as they play with the tech because it's just there. Do, do you think that has room outside of science fiction, those kinds of concepts which we have some understanding on the social psychology of? Maybe. I mean, that that's also very similar to um, the reason that, that they use Ender in, in Ender's game, right? I mean, he's, he's a child... And so he's he's not um, accustomed to having to do things a certain way. He's he's more creative in his thinking, um, and I absolutely agree with that premise. I mean, my my seven year old can do things with with an iPad and and you know hack into my phone when it's locked and and do all kinds of things that I don't even know is possible, um, just because he's grown up with it. And um, I, you know, yeah, that's going to continue. I mean, at some point, if we have true AI, if we have you know, autonomous vehicles, you know, driving us around on a daily basis, it, it's, it, it's going to seem like a normal occurrence to the, the newer generations and old people like me are going to be like, yeah, I remember when I had to, you know, start the car with my, with my finger. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, 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 I think there's probably a way to incorporate that into other places. I, I, I don't know that I'm smart enough to to think through those steps. Well, okay. uh, you know, you could always think about it like um, you're seeing a little bit of this uh, play out in Ukraine, believe it or not. Um, you've got um, oftentimes um, rather low tech and inexpensive solutions being thrown against incredibly expensive uh, tactical problems. So there's a cost curve there. But then there's also the sometimes uh, all of us older guys. Hey, I'm a history nerd, too. Um, remember when things weren't so quite ubiquitous so that like JR brought up, we either remember a, how we got there or secondly, how to break it and how to break it and, or go around it and do a uh, different alternative. So, and which was something that Haldeman pointed out too. Uh, I think like the, uh, basically at the uh, dead of, uh, Oh, you like that word there, JR at the, I do, uh, I do. I'm writing that down. There, they go all the way from every type of sci-fi weapon imaginable to end up back with spears and axes and halberds and stuff in the final battle scene. You know, because other technology, armor, energy shields, you know, good old fashioned force field type stuff has come full circle. So you know, I, I think it, the po I think a good point on that is, hey, never throw away some of that old stuff, man. It's like that box of uh, cables of weird sizes that all of us do. So all have. My God, I just went through mine. <laughs> so I have to say, if we get to self-driving cars, I will forever be Corbin Dallas in Fifth Element when he was the taxi driver in the beginning. If you've seen it, you know, you know. Uh, that will always be me, even if they've got robots to drive the car. Um, so, are you? An, you mentioned you are a little bit of a pessimist uh, about the future, um, but you know, as things develop, do you, do you? You know, are you still pessimistic or optimistic now? Excuse me, I said pessimist. I meant optimist. Um, your book describes how things could go either right or very wrong. Um, do you have a bet on which way this plays out? 
I, I mean, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna bet my house on on either way. Um, I, I have a lot of faith in the younger generation to do things better than we did, um, just in terms of the planet and politics. Um, and so, in that respect, I, I'm very optimistic. I, I'm. <sighs> sitting here next to my Department of Defense computer, which I affectionately call my doorstop, um, there's a part of me that's still very pessimistic about our ability to do things effectively and, and efficiently. And I think that's going to be our, our downfall um, as not just the United States, but as, as a human race, if we don't do some of the more optimistic things. But I, I mean, in general, I, I think we're, we're at a really, potentially good place as a human race, right? I mean, we, we've got plans for going back to the moon after 60 years. We've got plans for going to Mars. Um, you know, I, I, yes, it's a, a lot of that's in the hands of private corporations, which scares me a little bit, um, but I'm enough of a capitalist to hope the market will will balance everything out. And uh, we'll see. I, I, I know that's an awful answer. It didn't really answer your question, but... Uh, it, 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 I'm not a futurist. I'm I'm not a prognosticator, and so uh, I don't know that I can answer that any better. Okay, that's that's fair. Um, I will say that when it comes to government procurement, at least we learned some things. Ho hopefully, we don't re forget or forget them again after we learn them. But I remember when we were in, part of the the issue was the military when they want to procure something, they give down to the millimeter specs of what they want built, which of course makes things more expensive, takes slower to do, research takes longer. As the war was at its height, they started saying, oh, we needed to do this. And then they let the experts on the outside design it, which is how we went from the crappy helmets that we had in the early war to more to lighter ones that were more ergonomic that they were more functional but they said you know those football players over there in the nfl they've been protecting their head for a long time let's see what they can do and so they started reaching out they did the same thing i was involved to a lesser degree with convoy saying you know nascar has been driving fast with hot engines let's see what they can do and so we're starting to realize that sometimes the process can become the problem uh, so hopefully we didn't forget it since i left and gwat sort of wrapped up yeah, and I think that that's it ties into space really well because you know for a long time you had the sort of old establishment, the old defense contractors who were saying this is the only way that we can do space, and you know you get folks like SpaceX and and um, Blue Origin saying, well, no, we can do it differently. We can, we can make these reusable rockets and and do it much cheaper. We don't have to rely on Russia anymore. We can we can build these things on an assembly line. We can put you know, constellations of satellites up in one launch. I mean, there is a lot of progress being made in, in space as a result of, of just the private market saying we can do this better and, and uh, cheaper and, and more effectively. And, and hopefully the government's taking notice. We'll see. Well, you know, it's funny you bring, bring up um, SpaceX and NASA because the, the difference between the Artemis program in terms of how it's being done, you know, sort of the classic NASA way and how SpaceX gets things done is incredibly stark. I mean, when you compare it to side by side, by side it's two t totally different approaches, uh, I think, to the uh, to the putting people in orbit uh, problem. And that affects how we do things, actually, um, even as F-Space, because of uh, the human spaceflight support mission, you know, personal recovery, God forbid, something really bad happens. But um, along those lines, I, I think the greater presence of commercial um, entities in space 
Do you see that as sort of um, encouraging or perhaps uh, discouraging more international cooperation going down the road? What do you think it'll have little to no effect then? I, I think it's going to have mixed effect. One of the things that I, I wrote about a couple of years ago is, uh, again, sort of challenging conventional wisdom. Um, what are the consequences for international cooperation of SpaceX being able to provide launch? Um, you know, for a decade after the space shuttle got shut down, we were reliant on Russia for space launch. And even when we had tension with Russia, there was always that level of cooperation. And once we no longer rely on them, now that we can just sort of go to SpaceX and, and do everything, um, that that cooperation is gone. And yeah, Russia has done some other things that have, have hurt our cooperation. But, um, you know, even in the past, during Crimea, during Georgia, uh, the other things that Russia has done that we didn't like, we were still launching um, on the Soyuz. And and so I, I think that pri that in that one aspect, that that private development has taken away some some international cooperation. Um, in other ways, though, I, I think the fact that we can do things cheaper allows more countries to get involved. You have countries in Africa that are developing uh, space organizations and signing on to to Artemis. And, and that's because space has gotten cheaper. And that's because of of the private corporations getting involved. So I, I do think it's a little bit of, of you know, a double edged sword. Um, and we'll see where it plays out. Speaking of international, I'm going to jump in real quick. Uh, if you're listening over there in Australia, we like your uh, Australian Research in Space Initiative uh, with the acronym ARS. Uh, I know it's not real. It was a joke. But you should please make it real just so I can laugh, please. Okay. Sorry about that, Chris. <laughs> no, this is actually – it's great. He gets to say the things that I can't, uh, so I enjoy that too. <laughs> well, and, and we don't have an Australian student in our program this year or else I totally would have pitched that to him for you. I appreciate it. You're reaching out. I've got friends in Australia because, you know, my current pro work in progress, I'm writing an Australian military unit. And I have to say that, you know, normally modern publishing, they have things like sensitivity readers. You need the exact opposite, whatever you would call that, an insensitivity reader, I guess, to write Australians correctly. When he's trying to correct the grammar, not the grammar, the speech, the dialogue, I'm like, you do realize the American censors over on Amazon will not let me say that, right? Like, I can't write that. Some of the um, the curse words, um, the they make you proud. <laughs> um, my experience with Auss Aussies these days is pretty much limited to Bluey. So, um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> glad you're having fun, JR. <laughs> All, right. All right. So let's see. Um, you know, I got to get credit, Doc. You kind of, uh, you know, you blasted through a lot of these here. So I'm trying to have to jump around just a touch, but that's cool. So I guess this – Maybe, maybe you already answered this a little bit, but um, what do you think is the best way um, to encourage uh, military officers, especially senior officers, to read more fiction uh, of any kind to complement stuff that's usually the uh, service chief reading list uh, variety and dry doctrine and things like that? I I mean, by the time they're service chiefs, I don't, I don't know that you can convince them. I, I think getting them when they're lieutenants and, and captains and, and majors is, is the best time because they haven't had to go through the, the experience of higher level command. And so they're open to learning everything they can about leadership and, and uh, you know, thinking strategically. And, and, you know, we 
we do it in several different ways here at ACSE. I don't want to do an ad for ACSE or, or our, our Schriever concentration, but um, you know, I mentioned my elective, which is all science fiction. Um, my boss, uh, Dr. Andrea Harrington does a course on space law and they read uh, uh, Corey's Leviathan Wakes and talk about legal implications for some of the things that happened in that story. In our core course, we actually have them read um, Singer and Cole's Ghost Fleet. Um, and so we are giving them opportunities, you know, not the whole curriculum, one or two books in, in the core course and then electives that they choose to take. Um, we're giving them opportunities to kind of expand that horizon and see if they can draw things that are beneficial to them from science fiction. And I, I think that's the way you do it. You just um, make it clear that this isn't just, you know, you're not taking these classes or, or these lessons are not just the, the times that you take a knee. Like these are serious ways of studying things that can happen in the future and, and how to think about current events. Um, you know, I, it's to me, reading is, is just, it, it's exercise for your brain. It doesn't matter what you do. And yeah, there's some, some stuff you probably shouldn't read out there, but if it helps your vocabulary, if it helps you, defend your own way of thinking or challenge your way of thinking that there's still value in it. Um, and, and maybe that's what some of the chiefs are missing from their list. I think their lists are great. They're, they're, you know, right on target for the things that they want their military to be. Um, but I, I think there is room for more creative thinking. Um, of course, that's me being the hippie civilian professor. So uh, to note, you and I both write reviews for Upstream Reviews, uh, which is, you know, its claim to fame is if they can't give it at least a four star, they don't review it because life's too short for all that negativity. So maybe we'll tackle when you retire officially, Chris, you and I will tackle the uh, defense recommended reading list and start writing some uh, some reviews of those books. Oh, that could be an interesting well. project. Um <laughs> We might hate ourselves before we're over. But so you mentioned um, you're not an ad for the, the college. Is it open to civilians as well, or is it strictly military officers for those not in the know? It, it is open to civilians, but it, it's generally by invitation. I mean, it's not open to the general public. Um, right. We usually have a couple of Department of the Air Force civilians in the course. Um, in the past, we've had, um, you know, Air Force security um you know, different PME schools have different civilians. I know that like National Defense University will get State Department and, and Intel agency folks. Um, so yeah, there, there's civilians, there's international officers, um, there's there's not just uh, Space Force and Air Force, there's also Army, Navy, Coast Guard. Um, so it, it's a good mix, like, uh, like all the joint professional military education programs, um, but it's not open to the public. So is there something comparable that would be open to the public that you recommend? And if you, if you need time to think about it, um, I totally understand. Um, uh, if you want to come back to this uh, and we'll, we'll make a note in the show notes if you need to. No, I mean, off the top of my head, there, there are programs out there that are similar, similar in some ways. Um, a lot of master's programs on security studies, George Washington, Georgetown. Um, I want to say University of Denver has a program. Um, there, there are some out there. They're mostly master's level, one or two year programs that focus on military history, security studies, that kind of thing. Um, you know, I actually did a master's at George Washington in, in their security policy program. So I would vouch for that. 
Um, it's not exactly the same. You're not getting uh, a class full of military officers. It's mostly civilians. Um, you're not getting the joint war fighting and leadership stuff as much. You're getting a lot more theory. Um, but if it's stuff that you're interested in, it, I mean, check it out. It's any any kind of security studies program in the country would be pretty good. Okay. So we know that all uh, every sci-fi universe has its own internally consistent rules of science and technology, at least the good ones do. So what sort of tech from sci-fi should we expect from the near future? Obviously, you mentioned you're not a futurist. So this is just you as Greg Miller, the Uber fan, not Dr. Gregory Miller. This is just you, the person. What do you think? Right. Um, what would I like or what do I think is going to be realistic? Both, now that you mentioned it. Okay. <laughs> I should I should learn not to ask questions. Um, I I mean I I really want to see self driving cars because I don't want to have to deal with traffic anymore. That would it would be awesome to be able to just get in my car and read while on my way to work while the car is driving me. Um, I I'm hoping that's in the near future, but um, we'll see. Um, I. I'm fascinated by the concept of quantum computing and how that might affect how we think about strategic level problems, how we plan for military operations, how we think about um, you know code codes and code breaking. Um, I think that's sort of a fascinating uh, field. Uh, anything having to do with artificial intelligence, super intelligence. Um, you know, I, I enjoy reading Nick Bostrom's stuff on, on super intelligence, um, whether it comes about through uh, physical alteration or pharma pharmacological change. Um, you know, th those kinds of things are, I, I think, interesting and, and not too far on the horizon. Um, in terms of science fiction-y stuff, space stuff, I would, I would love to see a space elevator. Um, just, I, I don't know that I've, I'd have the courage to go up in it, but um, I just think that would be a really cool uh, tourist attraction for uh, wherever it would be built, somewhere on the equator, probably. Um, I, I, those are probably the, the big ones, sort of short term. Obviously, you know, given my, one of my first answers to this, I would love to see a Stargate be a, a reality, but I don't, I don't know that that's in the works anytime soon. I'll be honest with you. I think I'd rather do the space elevator than trust a, a, a self-driving car. That's just me though. I'm, I'm kind of like one of those, I want my hands on the wheel kind of, kind of guys. <laughs> so um, what type of tech or, or you know, is be as granular as you want uh, from science fiction, do you think is more of a pipe dream than a reality? Um, I, I mean, probably the, a Stargate or a teleporter is, is probably a pipe dream. Um, I, I'd like to think that faster than light travel of some sort is a possibility, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm not a physicist, so I don't know, but I, I'm skeptical that we'll ever get anything close to that. Um, and, and that's too bad because I, I, I think that sort of limits our ability to expand very far. Um, uh, those are probably the big ones that, that come to mind. For me, I'm not convinced we're ever going to get the cryogenics that you see in some of the space um, franchises. I just uh, I don't know that we're going to ever be able to perfect that. 
um, that level of stasis. What about you, uh, Christopher? Since we've got you here, uh, what what do you think is a pipe dream when it comes to sci-fi tech? Um, shoot. Um, probably the yeah. This is always a tough one. I I don't just based on some of the stuff we've seen. You know, based on the AccuB Air Drive and all that sort of stuff. I think there probably could be a type of FTL that we might stumble on by accident at some point, probably that more than anything else. Um, I've still got to say, cause I'm old, uh, probably cold fusion at this point because cold fusion is like always 10, 15 years away. It's been 10, 15 oh, years yeah. my entire life. So right mine now, too. I'm kind of <laughs> on that. Okay. All right. They, uh, that's a running joke in sci-fi communities is that, you know, whatever the, the FTL and cold fusion are always 15 years away. All right, Chris, the next set of questions is on you, sir. All right, let's see. So you already I think you already kind of answered this one, too, because of the uh, self-driving car. But um, would you abuse that tech and how if you if you had uh, access to it? Um, the self-driving car, I don't know that I, I'd abuse. I'd actually I, I think my stress level would drop a lot and uh, my road rage would die off. Um assuming everybody else had self-driving cars and it, it wasn't just me and everyone else is driving themselves still. So I think that that might be more stressful. Um, if I had a, you know, Stargate or a teleporter, I would abuse the hell out of that. I would, I would go to, you know, France for croissants in the morning and, and coffee and, and then Italy for dinner. Um, you know, maybe Saturn for lunch. I don't know. Um, That's that's a good answer. So the one thing that scares me about I'm gonna save you because I, I see you're you thinking heads going on. The one thing that scares me about the self-driving cars, PBS actually did, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, an hour-long panel on it, probably about 2014, 2015, is the algorithms it uses to calculate uh, acceptable risk. So like if it's you in the car by yourself and a bus full of nuns and little girls, it, you know, crosses and it's gonna be an accident. Does the algorithm decide to save you or, you know, for the greater good? It's basically the, the trolley problem, right? Yeah. Uh, and, and those calculations scare me that it would make those decisions. I'd almost rather trust my abilities and my reflexes to try to save myself and them than to trust the AI to say, well, you had a good run, sir. You're dead. And, so. and that's, yeah, I mean, that that's where you need the cryogenics and, and the ability to download your brain into a, a computer so you could still survive that. You know, they, they showed that on We Are Legion, the Bobaverse books, exactly how that could go wrong, too. <laughs> Have you read those? No. So he, he wins the lottery, walks, this is the entry of the book one, he walks across the street and gets hit by a bus, so they freeze his, basically his brain and it gets uploaded into satellites and then makes copies of itself and personality fragments, and it's glorious. You should You should check it out. I think you'll dig it. All right. And it's kind of like Futurama on acid. And I mean, and that's saying a lot if you think about it. Yeah, isn't Futurama already on acid? I double acid, <laughs> I guess. <laughs> All right. Uh, before we admit to anything that would get you two in trouble because your security clearance is Chris, so ask the next question. <laughs> okay, so sort of the big one is: Do you believe that we'll encounter um, alien life at some point? And what do you think those species uh, might? Uh, might be uh, might look like or might take might, might be derived from that sort of thing i i mean i can't say that we wouldn't because i mean space is so huge i can't imagine 
a, a scenario where we don't eventually encounter some sort of, of life. Um, it may be microbes, it may be amoeba, it may be something that we don't even understand. It may not necessarily be sentient or humanoid, but I, I, I gotta believe that there's something. Um, I, I think the real science fiction person in me thinks that there is something intelligent out there. I don't know that we'll encounter it in, in my lifetime uh, or in the next couple of generations, but yeah, I, I do think there's something out there. I don't know that they're necessarily um, visiting us and, and killing our cows and, and making milks <laughs> in, in cornfields. Um, but I, I do think that the, even just the accidental chance that, that we happened here, there's, there's so much out there that it, it, it seems to me it has to have happened somewhere else as well. Um, uh, we may never encounter each other, but, um, yeah, it, it, I, I don't want to like quote the movie contact, but if there's not somebody there, it's an awful waste of space, right? Yes, that was what I was thinking too, but you beat me to it. Sorry. It's okay. That's what you're here for. Yeah, but it's your show. I, I don't want to steal your thunder. It's okay. I probably said it a billion times on the pod. They get to hear it from somebody else's voice this time. So it's a win for my audience. There you go. All right. So you mentioned, you know, you expect at some point that it's possible we incur, uh, encounter aliens. Do you think we're going to get the forehead ridge of the, of the wheat club like we got from Star Trek? Or do you think it's so far unknown that we probably couldn't even imagine it? Uh, probably a little of both. I mean, I, I, the, the wonderful thing about going back and reading old science fiction, and I love, you know, we haven't talked about this, I love reading like Foundation and, and Dune and 2001, some of the old stuff um, or older stuff. And what I really enjoy about it is how much they get right. I mean, yes, dates are off. We're not, we're not touring Jupiter in 2001, but, um, you know, whether it's computers and, and handheld devices and, and, uh, smartphones and those kinds of things. I mean, science fiction writers get a lot right. And, you know, I, I think there's, um, you know, there's a decent chance of that. So this is a little off topic. So one of the things that you get in military sci-fi circles, if you talk to other authors that are in sort of the indie scene where I, I frequent, is that if you really want to get a diehard audience, write about Coasties because they're the branch that everyone forgets exists. Uh, even the Space Force, as new as it is, gets more play than the Coast Guard generally get in science fiction. Uh, I have written with, uh, with Chris's wife, in full disclosure, a Space Coastie story for an anthology. But uh, as we think realistically, do you think there's room for a Coast Guard in a space setting other than just, you know, Terra Pharma? Yeah, actually, I mean, we have, I mean, this is a conversation we have in our classes is, is does Space Force need to be thinking about itself not only as, um, you know, a, a blue water type of Navy going out into space, but a Coast Guard, Space Guard type of force to do things like rescues in space um, or near, you know, cis-lunar types of operations. Um, I, you know, whether that's part of Space Force or Coast Guard in space, um, you know, I, I think that's definitely in, in the cards for the future. I just don't know what form it would take. Um, so you if, you, if, if you think of the, the, the location, you know, between the Earth and the Moon, cis-lunar space, um, you know, who's in charge of that? It, it, it seems a lot like what the Coast Guard does for our coastal defense and, and search and rescue type of operations. So in the in the story, uh, 
Jamie and I wrote, we had them essentially, you know, taking the buoy tenders to, you know, satellite tending in space um, was, was sort of our take on it. And then shenanigans happened. Do you think we will see it as a space guard or, uh, or a coast guarded space? Like as space guard, meaning maybe a new branch of service or would they just transfer their mission I, or could I, go I either know. way? Yeah. I mean, I could see it going either way. It, it depends on, which members of Congress are most influential at the time that the decision is made, I guess. <laughs> fair, fair. So, uh, with, um, go, ahead, go ahead, sorry. I was just say, this is a sort of a, a pivot on that same question, but more near and dear to your Air Force heart. Do you see now that the Space Force has been stood up, the, the Air Force having a role in space as a legitimate branch of service beyond Earth? Um. Probably less so now that there's a space force. I mean, there are still people in Air Force that that do space, so I don't think that's going away. Just like there's, you know, Army FA40s who do space. There, there's naval space operators. Um, I, I don't think that's going to change anytime soon. But my my hunch is most of the new missions are probably going to go to space force. Otherwise, why have it? So, right. so I, I was going to go say. Ahead, no, actually, um, as um, now that we're at space here at First Air Force as well, we're actually the air component to U.S. Spacecom. And really our bailiwick is to do Air Force air component things for space. So if you want to think of it this way, we're like the only purely terrestrial component that uh, Spacecom has surface up to the um, 100 kilometer mark, which is where, you know, Space Force and SIFSPOC or SIFSIC, I'm sorry. And, uh, you know, you know, the... Um, the service, the space force service component for Spacecom sort of takes over at that point. And then when stuff comes back down again, like um, capsules from the ISS and uh, we posture personal recovery assets um, just in case, again, something goes wrong um, or, or to just help with the recovery, then, um, yeah, that, that's sort of like how the Air Force is playing into how Spacecom at least is operating. And that's just one of the missions, um, but that's the one that's most developed right now. And um Future missions are sort of, you know, there's a timeline for those, just like Spacecom itself is well, is still pretty new. So there is speculation that, you know, you'll always have the Army, Navy, Air Force, et cetera, on all the planet side stuff, because somebody's still got to do it. I mean, assuming we go to planets with atmospheres, et cetera, on other, you know, in other galaxies. But that when it comes to the actual space component, you'll have essentially like a Navy Marine Corps duo of space fleet and something else for the space component. But having space seen how... Yeah. Yeah, Space Marines. Having seen how the branches fought over access to the slice of the pie that was the Iraq war to justify budgets, I don't know that I buy that every branch won't have something out there. I mean, I remember them seeing uh, sent, trying to send fleet uh, ship driving officers to manage convoys just so they could say they had people in Iraq to justify more money. So I, I don't see that changing. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, But I know, you know some people that think more highbrow have other opinions on how that might play out, a more idealized version maybe. No, I mean, in, so. in, you go back to the past. I mean, every service wanted a piece of, of the nuclear triad. Every service wanted to keep their air component when the Air Force was first created. I mean, that, that's pretty standard, you know, bureaucracy 101. Yeah, I actually knew somebody that was in the Army uh, when the Air Force was stood up. Uh, and he ended up in the Air Force when they went, you Army, you Air Force. And they just took all their uniforms, dumped them in a thing of boiling water and made them blue. So, like, it's it's not that long ago that the Army Air Corps wasn't, it, you know, the what is the Air Force now. So, uh, we things can happen quickly once they start moving, I suspect. 
True. And to the Space Force's credit, they had that model to um, look at and go, okay, so what did they get right? What did they get wrong? So I actually think the Space Force's approach to standing up as a separate branch is is worth looking at because I think they've done a lot of the right things uh, overall in trying to separate themselves. I mean, I'll keep comments on the service dress uniform prototype to myself. Uh, but uh, <laughs> that's okay. We set them on our episode where we talked about the space force. I'll uh, link that in the show notes. Chris doesn't have to give an official opinion. I gave mine. <laughs> but you know, Although, you, also, you also brought up a good point too, though. You know, to the Navy's credit, though, um, Jr. During the war, they, they even set up a whole naval expeditionary command. They had something like forty thousand sailors that were augmenting the army. I worked with a couple of those guys when I was in Iraq. All uh, of Intel people, EOD. So, oh, and the uh, the CRAM bubbas, um, because when they, uh, you know, started taking those little R2-D2 guns off of uh, Boats and putting them on to uh, ground installations, you know, they had that somebody to train the air defense people how to do it. So, uh, so it's, it's interesting, you know, joint, jointness I don't think is going away, is, is I guess you, a good way to think about it. Technology has made that even more so. I have seen as I was getting out of the Army and I was medically retired in my seven. Uh, they were taking the SeaWiz, which were uh, anti-missile defense for ships, and mounting them on trucks and using them for ground-based stuff. So I think a lot of that is going to it's going to be some overlaps, I suspect, going forward. Um, and uh, yeah, the it was just an interesting time, and I think it forced us to get creative. So hopefully that continues that inter-service cooperation. Um, yeah, it, but it, I mean, historically, the services are much more cooperative when they're in war than they're when they're in garrison, right? At times like this, we're fighting over budgets and and recruiting uh, numbers and things like that. Um, it, when you're actually in war, it seems that cooperation is much more likely. Do you see um, the push for colonization being able to galvanize people uh, like the westward expansion did? And, without having to have some sort of intergalactic war to get that cooperation? Uh, I I think it comes down to whether there's actually any profit in it. I think if, if um, you know, one of the big sources of, of tension between countries is resource scarcity. And if we can show that there's, um, you know, rare earth minerals or, or valuable minerals of some sort, if there's um, even just space for, for living, um, that alleviates a lot of the conflict on the earth. And, and so I, I think that could be a source of um, releasing tension in some ways. Um, then again, if, if we find really valuable resources that are incredibly scarce, then I think that's just going to make conflict even more likely to, to be the first to get there and, and hold on to it. So um, I, I think it could go either way. Well, the good news is, as we wrap this up, when in space, nobody can hear the Marines eat their crown. So I think that's how the quote goes, right, Chris? Oh, dude, I'm uh, stealing that. That's a good one. I'm keeping that. One. Thank you. <laughs> outstanding. Outstanding. All right. So clearly this interview is winding down. We could keep you here forever with these hypothetical fun questions, and we're definitely going to have to have you back. This was a lot of fun. But was there anything we didn't ask you about Sun Tzu in space uh, before we let you go? I know it's out in ebook and hardcover, or at least it will be when this episode airs. Uh, any plans to do your own uh, audiobook of it? Um, I, no, but I, I don't know that anyone wants to hear me. Um, <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm holding out for Matthew McConaughey maybe to do the, the audio. Um, I, I haven't seen him in anything recently, so I don't, I don't know if he's busy. Um, I, I don't know. I haven't, Naval, Naval Institute Press hasn't talked to me about any kind of audiobook plan. I, I don't know if it depends on how well it sells. I don't, 
I'd love to see that because um, I think that might be the only way some of my students ever read my book is if there's an audio book, but uh, I, I don't know. We'll see. Okay. So um, Chris, did you want to give us any final thoughts before I wrap this up? I know you came on here as my special expert, subject matter expert guy. No, I appreciate the chance to, uh, to do this. This was really fun and insightful. And uh, like I said, Dr. Miller, I'd uh, like to follow up with you. Um, you know, when you got some time uh, about the uh, day job type stuff. Absolutely. And, and one last thing I'll mention, if, if I could. Um, so we're in, in Maxwell Air Force Base right now in Montgomery, Alabama. But uh, starting in the fall, we're standing up a Space Force uh, professional military education program. Some people may have seen uh, news clips about it. We're going to be partnering with Johns Hopkins University. So um, we're kind of breaking the PME model. All of our students are getting a master's from Johns Hopkins and uh, we'll be basically teaching the same thing that we have been here. It's just uh, much more, um, you know, big thinking and uh, philosophy and strategy that are, that'll be going on for the, the Space Force and the sister service students that attend the school. So. I'll be I'll be part of that program. I'm I'm looking forward to it. Um, being in DC and, and teaching as part of that program. So, I don't know if any of your uh, audience is interested in that, but uh, that's something on the horizon. Okay, that is good to know. Uh, change is always good, although sometimes hard. Uh, but we're going to end the show, dear listener, dear viewers, like we always do. We're going to remind you to please be kind and speak your mind on the reviewing platforms. Uh, your reviews help the right readers find the right books. And that also applies to the academic uh, highbrow stuff. Uh, it's still on Amazon where you can leave reviews. Uh, I found it on the Air Force War College's official website. Can you review over there at all? I haven't uh, played with the website since I found it on Amazon. On um, Naval Institute Press, I think you can. I have to go back and check. Okay, so wherever you buy it, uh, leave a yeah, review. Not sure. If not, go to Goodreads. But your reviews matter. Tell a friend. Tell a dozen friends. Buy a dozen copies for your friends. Uh, but do your part, people. It really helps. And with that said, uh, Dr. Gregory Miller, how can listeners and viewers find you if they wanted to uh, to reach out and acquire more? Um, I I am on, well, you found me over email, but you said it was a little bit tough. Uh, we don't make it easy to find our, our faculty. I am on on the Twitter. Um, I'm at at the strategy prof on Twitter. Um, I I don't post a lot, but what I do is incredibly insightful and intelligent. And uh, at least that's what my wife says. Um, Naturally, I you know that that's really the the only social media that I'm on. Uh, otherwise, I'm I'm Googleable. I have a dot mil for those who are in the military and want to find me on the global. Um, and, and, you know, I'll be at Johns Hopkins starting next year if you want to find me there. Okay, that is fair. That is fair. Uh, you can find us, dear listener, on Twitter at twitter.com backslash SF underscore fantasy underscore show. Sierra Foxtrot underscore fantasy underscore show. You can email us at blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. Again, blastersandbladespodcast at gmail.com. We have a Facebook group where all the shenanigans happen at blast uh, facebook.com backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast again backslash groups backslash blasters and blades podcast as usual we do have a facebook page as well we need a few more likes and follows to get the uh algorithm to let us have a dedicated url so uh make that happen for us people you can search that in the little facebook search bar and it'll pop right up 
We have a website at anchor.fm backslash blasters tech and tech blades. Again, anchor.fm backslash blasters dash and dash blades, where you can support the show for as little as 99 cents a month. Uh, or you can support the show more directly over at buymeacoffee.com backslash author JR Handley. Again, buymeacoffee.com backslash author JR Handley. Be sure to put in the comment section that it is for the podcast. And I will promise I will keep my co hosts, Doc Seska and Nick Garber, duly caffeinated. They will drink until their liver explodes and if they were here they would tell you they mama didn't raise no quitters but before i bring us completely home i realized i was very rude and uh chris how can listeners and viewers find you okay so um i got an amazon author page i'm kristen out there my wife jamie is uh on there as herself but also as her pen name liska mccabe um we've got a couple of uh works out there we have a uh combined authors page on facebook as well chris and jamie denote authors with a question mark because uh, we're still kind of working on that, um, as well as um, I do have a um, a uh, you know a Twitter account as well. That's just under my natural name. Uh, for anybody who wants to try to find me there, I try to keep it to mostly uh, writing stuff. Speaking of which, I need to get back uh, get back to it a bit. So, um, but thanks for the uh, for the opportunity, Jar. Absolutely, and we appreciate you guys sticking with us. So, thank you for spending some of your precious time with us. For the absentee Nick Garber and Doc Seska, I am J.R. Hanley, and this was the Blasters and Blades podcast. We'll be back next week at the same time where we'll indulge our love of nerd culture, cheesy jokes, and all things that go boom. <laughs>